Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 142, Run the Numbers, the Theology of Arithmetic. In this episode, we're looking at an amazing, obscure, wondrous, and, well, numerically theological work from late antiquity. This is the Theologumina Arithmeticae, to give its Latin title, which is just a little bit different from its Greek title, Theologumina Arithmeticae, The Theology of Arithmetic. It is a short but packed arithmological treatise dealing with the properties of the decad, or the numbers 1 through 10. We want to introduce and discuss this work, but also use it as a gateway into a bunch of other stuff we should talk about. We want to review what we've said about arithmology thus far in the podcast and see where we're at in the late 3rd, early 4th century, which is when this little handbook was probably written. We want to expand on what we've said about arithmology as well, because the Theologumina takes us into territory we haven't yet visited in the podcast, or at least territory we haven't spent enough time in. We also want to talk about Jamblichus's take on number, for it is he, gentle listener, because this little work may well be by the sage of Chalkis himself, or perhaps by some student of his. Because here's the thing, arithmological approach to number was hugely important to Jamblichus, and it's something that we've mostly left out of our treatment of that philosopher, so we should take this opportunity to talk a little bit about it. So hopefully, on the way to killing several birds with a single stone in the form of antiquity's most complete surviving treatise on arithmology, let's discuss this little book and then follow a few arithmological byways which lead off from this little book. The Theology of Arithmetic is a shortish work structured in ten sections, according to the ten numbers of the Decad. We'll talk more about these numbers anon because they're not the numbers as we know them from maths class. There's no introduction to the work, and it's pretty jumbled together. This is in part because the majority of it is simply cribbed from two earlier works, The Lost Theology of Arithmetic, so the same title, by Nicomachus of Garassa, and the miraculously surviving on the decad of Anatolius. So our work, The Theology of Arithmetic, by some anonymous author, or maybe by Jambicus, is largely made up of bits taken from those two works. Now, Nicomachus, we discussed in episode 87. He was an incredibly influential second century mathematician, and you might say extended mathematician. He wrote, for example, the introduction to arithmetic. Nothing esoteric here, folks. Although there is in that book a lot of interesting speculation as to how number theory might work which doesn't quite answer the question, leaving it to Frege, Russell, Gödel, and those guys to hash it out in the early 20th century. But there's also in that book a lot of speculation about how number relates to reality. And that other level of number is probably what Nicomachus dealt with in his lost theology of arithmetic. This is number as eternal principle. These are the special arithmological numbers. We'll come back to that. Now, as for Anatolius's On the Decad, this gets interesting. This work actually survives in a single manuscript, and it's an even shorter treatise than our Theology of Arithmetic. But like it, it's a survey of the ten numbers of the Decad. 
Now, who is Anatolius? Well, keen listeners will recall that episode 134, we introduced Iamblichus, and we said that we know his first teacher was someone called Anatolius. Now, we know two relevant Anatoliuses from our period. One was a peripatetic teacher from Alexandria, so someone of the school of Aristotle. Most people think that this must have been the guy who taught Iamblichus. But there is another Anatolius from our period, a guy who later on became bishop of Laodicea. Now, most people think that disqualifies him from having taught Iamblichus, who is, after all, a seriously polytheistic thinker. But I'll just make a provocative aside here and say that we don't actually have any a priori reason to think it's impossible that Iamblichus's first teacher might have been a Christian and even been a Christian in the very period in which he was teaching Iamblichus, because it's been thought maybe he was a polytheist who later became a Christian, after Iamblichus had already matriculated. If anything, the history of philosophic teaching at Alexandria in late antiquity, and that's the city we have the most evidence for vis-a-vis philosophy and philosophic teaching in, in late antiquity, this history shows us that Christians and polytheists teaching and learning together was the norm, if anything. We'll see a classic example of that when we get to the story of Hypatia of Alexandria, a 5th century Platonist and mathematician whose students included a, a different future bishop who held her in the highest regard. So the identity of the Anatolius who wrote on the Decad is a mystery, but we can probably assume that whoever it was, it was the same Anatolius who taught Iamblichus, because it would make sense that the book he has to hand on the Decad is the one by his teacher, although we don't know that for sure. So if that's the case, we know that Iamblichus came by his arithmological tendencies from his early philosophical education, even if he didn't write the Theologumena Arithmetica that we have. And it might be that the bishop Anatolius wrote the On the Decad and even taught Iamblichus. Arithmological speculation was a Christian tradition with a long and distinguished pedigree already in the 3rd century. There's a lot of it in Clement of Alexandria, you'll remember, especially in his amazing exegesis of the Jewish tabernacle in the Stromates. And as we shall see in the podcast, things really hot up in the 4th century and beyond. So we can say that arithmological speculation is, in some sense, as, as Christian as the Gospels, but tends to be transmitted in an esoteric type of Christian writing. So who did write our text, The Theology of Arithmetic, which is, as I said, sort of ripping off those two earlier texts? Well, the manuscript tradition tells us it's Iamblichus. And we can say in the first place that everything about the work seems pretty Iamblichian, from its plagiaristic approach to sources to its neo-Pythagorean stance on numbers. Plus, Iamblichus promises an arithmological work in his commentary on Nicomachus's Introduction to Arithmetic. So maybe this is that work, right? Whoever wrote it did so basically by cribbing the two works mentioned before and throwing in some linking passages which seem original. The whole thing might be, for example, lecture notes for delivering a discourse on the subject of the numbers, and could indeed be Iamblichus's lecture notes. However, there seems to be something of a scholarly consensus for regarding this thing as by an anonymous author. So I'm happy to leave the question open. We should keep in mind, though, that this work is precisely what we might expect from Iamblichus's promised arithmological work, even if this isn't it. 
So it can help, I think, to shed light on one aspect of Iamblichus's thought, namely the position that the higher numbers occupy in the metaphysical scheme of things. I say the higher numbers because that's what we're dealing with here, numbers in themselves, not the everyday common or garden variety numbers that you use to like tot up the bill at the end of a nice meal in a restaurant. That sort of thing Jambloquist deals with in his On General Mathematical Science. These are numbers as elements of the nature of reality itself. So let's turn to that now, what we on the podcast call arithmology, for want of a better term. For Jamblichus, like many Platonists and so-called Neopythagoreans, there is a regular number that you use to count with, es, dio, tres, tetres, etc. in ancient Greek. And then there is the monad, the dyad, the triad, monas, dios, trias, etc. in ancient Greek, up to dekas, the decad, all of which are something quite different from the arithmetic numbers that you use for doing mathematical operations. These are perhaps platonic forms of number, the numbers in themselves. Uh, We see this difference in approach immediately in the fact that these numbers are in some sense not simply a given number of ones. Three can normally be seen as three ones altogether, right? A, A grouping of three ones or one times three. But here, the triad, the trias, is its own thing with an essence quite different from three monads in a row. This approach to number, which inevitably gets called Pythagorean, based on the slimmest of evidentiary bases, I'm going to call arithmological, as I say, for lack of a more precise term. Now, the theory of numbers outlined in the Theologumena is also in line with little hints of number theory that we get in Jamblichus's other works, including, of course, his approach to the monad and the dyad, which we encountered back in episode 135. Yes, gentle listener, the highest principles of reality in Jamblichus's system and in the system of any post-Platinian Platonist are not called one monad and dyad just for fun. They are viewed very much through a lens of this kind of neo-Pythagoreanizing arithmological way of thinking. Numbers are real and they're fundamentally real in a certain way. Now to back up briefly, we can maybe do a quick recap of the sources for this way of thinking, as far as we can reconstruct them, because they are an essential part of the Western esoteric tradition. We have Aristotle's testimony that the early Pythagoreans thought that all things were number. What the heck that means is open to much debate, but we do have fragments from Philolaus and Archytas of Tarentum, who wrote as late as the 4th century BCE, which give us some indications that they were worried about number not in terms of practical stuff like counting, but more esoteric stuff like the nature of a knowable cosmos, and how such a cosmos must probably imply something mathematical going on. They were concerned with the meaning of numbers, which brings us into arithmological territory. Then Plato, as we know, writing a bit before Aristotle, but also following on the Pythagoreans, thinks mathematics is really important. Mathematics, geometry, and music all form crucial phases of the education of the philosopher rulers in the Republic. And Plato, as we've seen, scattered all those vexing mathematical puzzles in the Republic and other works. See episode 32 on some of that stuff. Which means that at least he's expecting his readers to get serious about mathematics if they want to understand him. And it might mean more than that as well. 
Whatever the connection of Plato's number stuff, especially in the cosmology in the Timaeus, remember all the ratios that the soul is made out of and how the whole thing is sort of numerical, right? And geometrical. Whatever the connection of that stuff with Pythagorean thought, meaning the actual Pythagoreans in South Italy, it's clear that the majority assumption in antiquity was that Plato was getting this stuff from a vague Pythagorean tradition. So Plato was, in some way, doing Pythagorean stuff with all this number stuff. And this is one sign of the transformation of the Pythagorean mystique into something distinctly numerical and even esoterically numerical. Already in the 3rd century, right? Something we talked about in episode 17. So, immediately following Plato, his two successors as heads of the academy, Spusippus and Xenocrates, were clearly concerned with number in some metaphysical way, but the fragmentary state of their works means that we can't say much with certainty about what exactly they thought. We then have a bit of a gap in our evidence, until in the first century BCE stroke CE, we find the Platonist philosophers Eudorus and Philo of Alexandria employing an implicit theory of number, which is basically fully-fledged arithmology. Numbers have meanings, and each integer from 1 to 10 has a sort of character, which opens the doors of esoteric interpretation for Philo, so that every time the scriptures mention two of something or three of something, there are, of course, esoteric philosophical doctrines hidden within, and you can use the numbers to draw them out. Clement of Alexandria, as we saw in our series on that philosophic Jewish Christian, takes Philo's approach and runs with it. Everything that can be counted can also be read esoterically as conveying arithmological information. And then we have a somewhat different but parallel tradition of people like Moderatus of Gades, who were very much basing their metaphysics on arithmological speculations. So here we start to see a one as a first principle, followed by a dyad, and so forth. This whole tradition is often called Neopythagorean, but it's often more indebted to Plato than to anyone else, in fact, and it all gets a bit messy when we try to characterize it or classify it. At any rate, Neopythagorean speculations that we find in fragments of Moderatus, also in like a large uh, pseudonymous literature of the Hellenistic period and beyond, is part of the ingredients that lead to our text sometime in the late 3rd century, early 4th. So that's a little um, going over the ground again to kind of situate ourselves. Now there's a couple points to make here. First of all, the kind of handbook of arithmology that we find in the Theologumina is really different from these examples that we've just given so far. This is like a handbook for the meanings we might want to associate with each number when doing the kind of arithmological interpretation that we find in Philo, Clement, and others. Maybe standing to the tradition as Artemidorus's dream manual stands to the tradition of dream interpretation. So it's a kind of textbook, which you can then take the information from and go out into the world and say, aha, the two. This, of course, indicates the dyad, which indicates blah, blah, blah. But secondly, we need to understand the role these numbers play in the thought world of, say, a Iamblichus, or just even a generally literate late antique intellectual with a Platonist bent. There had been for many centuries a debate known nowadays in the history of philosophy as to the status of the mathematicals in Platonism. It must be the case, it was thought, 
that at least some forms are mathematical entities. Platonic dialogues like the Mino make this abundantly clear. Whatever there are forms of, there must surely be forms of things like triangle in itself, perhaps a form of oneness, twoness, and so forth. So what would be the relation between a form of monad, oneness, and the forms of things like justice or the good or horse? Well, Plato makes it clear that there's some relation there because in the reports of his notorious lecture on the good, uh, the climactic revelation was that the good is one. What to make of that is another story, but let's take it as emblematic of the connection between forms and mathematical realities in Plato and the tradition following on him. So everyone agrees there must be some mathematical entities in the realm of forms, but how do they relate to other forms? This is the question. The ontological position of the mathematicals was something debated quite a bit in antiquity. Was there a sort of mathematical layer mediating between the forms proper and the world soul? Were all forms fundamentally mathematical, a position that John Dillon suspects was Plotinus's conviction? These were all hot topics. We know that volumes five through seven of Iamblichus's massive 10-volume work on Pythagoreanism, and of course it was 10 volumes, because the 10, the decad, is the, the crucial Pythagorean number. Uh, but sadly, these volumes are all lost unless the On the Pythagorean Life, which survives, formed part of the 10 volumes, maybe as volume one. Anyway, those three volumes dealt with the mathematical teachings concerning ethics, physics, and theology, respectively. Perhaps the Theologumena Arithmetica that we have is somehow related to the lost book seven of that magnum opus, or maybe even is volume seven, unknown. But the point here is that according to this arithmological way of thinking, the idea that mathematics and the mathematicals might have some relevance to ethics or theology comes naturally. Physics doesn't surprise us, maybe, because we moderns do all our physics through mathematics. But this is, in fact, an example of the Platonists being right after all. And maybe we should rethink the ethics and theology part as well. Maybe mathematics has more to tell us than we think. Now, it behooves us, gentle listener, to explore this text a little bit for the insights it gives us into Greek arithmological thought in late antiquity. We're going to select a few passages from various bits of the text, starting from the monad, and explore the possibilities of this way of approaching number. The translation is the excellent English rendering by Robin Waterfield. And he notes, by the way, that his translation is the first one into a modern language, as far as he's aware, writing back in the 1980s which shows how neglected this text has been. Although things have gotten better since, if you'll check out the bibliography of this episode, you'll see. Nevertheless, this is a bit of secret history in that this is a, a very important testimony to ancient ways of thinking about number, but has been largely ignored. Also, if this whole territory is unfamiliar to you, if you haven't heard our episode with Joel Calvismaki, if the, the very notion of arithmology is baffling, you want to check out our interview with Juan Acevedo over in the Schwepp podcast for a more large-scale exploration of alphanumeric thinking in general and of the kind of approach to number as a constitutive element of reality because that provides great background for this uh, episode. Now, the monad. Note that the word here, monas in Greek, is different from hen, the neuter singular of the Greek number one. So the one... Tohen is what our Platonists, from Plotinus onwards, 
see as the ineffable first principle of all reality. Iamblichus, as we've seen, then posits monads at all levels of reality below the one. So the monad is by no means an ordinary number, but in the particular case of the one in late Platonism, the term the one is always reserved for the absolutely highest, most transcendent, most ineffable first basis of everything. So the one in this way of thinking really transcends number altogether. It's just an ultimate unity without the possibility of multiplicity. So what does the Theologumena tell us about the monad? The monad is the non-spatial source of number. It is called monad because of its stability. So here uh, the author is doing a bit of esoteric etymology, uh, deriving monas from menen, which is to be stable or to stay. It is called monad because of its stability, since it preserves the specific identity of any number with which it is conjoined. For instance, 3 times 1 equals 3, 4 times 1 equals 4. See how the approach of the monad to these numbers preserved the same identity and did not produce a different number. So we see here that although these special arithmological numbers are, are higher than the normal numbers we use for arithmetic, they can also engage in arithmetic operations, right? You can multiply them, you can subtract them, all this kind of thing. Continuing with our quotation, everything has been organized by the monad because it contains everything potentially. For even if they are not yet actual, nevertheless the monad holds seminally the principles which are within all numbers, including those which are within the dyad. For the monad is even and odd, and even odd, linear and plain and solid, cubical and spherical, and in the form of pyramids, from those with four angles to those with an indefinite number of angles, perfect and over-perfect, and defective, proportional and harmonic, prime and incomposite, and secondary, diagonal and side, and it is the source of every relation, whether one of equality or inequality, as has been proved in the introduction. Now this is probably a reference to uh, Nicomachus's introduction to arithmetic, upon which Jambluck commented, so he may well be uh, referring to his own commentary here. Now let's go a bit ahead and get into our theological stuff. Nicomachus says that God coincides with the monad, since he is seminally everything which exists, just as the monad is in the case of number, and there are encompassed in it in potential things which, when actual, seem to be extremely opposed in all the ways in which things may, generally speaking, be opposed, just as it is seen throughout the introduction to arithmetic, to be capable, thanks to its ineffable nature, of becoming all classes of beings and to have encompassed the beginning, middle, and end of all things, whether we understand them to be composed by continuity or by juxtaposition. Because the monad is the beginning, middle, and end of quantity, of size, and moreover, of every quality. Just as without the monad there is in general no composition of anything, so also without it there is no knowledge of anything whatsoever, since it is a pure light, most authoritative over everything in general, and it is sun-like and ruling, so that in each of these respects it resembles God, and especially because it has the power of making things cohere and combine, even when they are composed of many ingredients and are very different from one another. So this monad is on the one hand kind of numerical, but on the other hand it's theological, and the way our author is thinking about it, it's, it's like applying what the number one does in mathematics analogically to how the universe works, right? It's a very fascinating way of thinking. Now, 
on the dyad starts with a quote from Anatolius. Adding dyad to dyad is equivalent to multiplying them. Adding them and multiplying them have the same result. And yet in all other cases, multiplication is greater than addition. So here we go. These are just some interesting mathematical characteristics of the number two, right? Nothing that esoteric there. But then here we go. Among the virtues, they liken it to courage, they being, of course, the notional Pythagoreans. For it has already advanced into action. Hence, too, they used to call it daring and impulse. Now, daring is this word tolma, which shows up in Plotinus as a kind of explanation for how things ended up not just being one in the first place. So it's, it's kind of given a negative aspect, at least in the Platinian context, because it is by a sort of recklessness that the universe came to expand into multiplicity. So that's a little bit about the dyad. Now here gets a little more metaphysical. So each thing and the universe as a whole is one as regards the natural and constitutive monad in it. But again, each is divisible insofar as it necessarily partakes of the material dyad as well. And I should stop here and say that the principle of matter is often associated with the dyad in the Platonist tradition generally, and certainly is by Iamblichus and the author of the Theologumena. Now, in the interest of time, we're going to jump ahead to the decad, the greatest number, as it were, the final number, because the arithmological authors of this tradition seem to have taken the fact that our numbering system is based in 10 as somehow very, very significant. One wonders what an arithmology uh, developed in the Akkadian world would have looked like since they had a, a system based on the number 60, but we may never know. Now, just a note on the Decad. Let's talk about the sacred Pythagorean Tetractus. 10 was in some ways the signature number of that nebulous antique current of thought known as Pythagoreanism. And you'll note in the history of Western esotericism that whenever 10s show up, people tend to want to bring in the Pythagoreans, even into uh, cultural contexts where they don't belong, such as the 10 Sephirot of the Sefer Yetzirah. These have reminded many interpreters of a kind of Jewish Pythagorean numerical mysticism, and they'll sometimes try to bring the Pythagorean tradition into it somehow, even though we have no evidence that it plays a role. Or conversely, in visual art, we often see references to the Pythagorean Tetractus, which is often written in the form of, of an equilateral triangle made up of 10 dots, such as the numerous early modern engravings showing the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of the Jewish god, seen by many as the most authoritative and primal of his many names, arranged in a Tetractus-type shape, like a pyramid. So bringing the Pythagorean notional tradition together with the Kabbalistic tradition as appropriated by non-Jews, into a nice esoteric synthesis. We provide one example of this Kabbalistic tetractus in the illustration to this episode, but there are many more as this iconography became really a strong esoteric trope. Now, as for the Decad, quote, we have often said before that the creative mind wrought the construction and composition of the universe and everything in the universe by reference to the likeness and similarity of number as if to a perfect paradigm. Uh, listeners may well be reminded of uh, Plato's Timaeus. That's no accident. But since the whole was an indefinite multitude, and the whole substance of number was inexhaustible, it was not reasonable or scientific to employ an incomprehensible paradigm. And there was a need of commensurability, so that the creator god, that would be the demiurge, 
in his craftsmanship, might prevail over and overcome the terms and measures which were set before him, and might neither contract in an inferior fashion nor expand in a discordant fashion to a lesser or greater result than what was appropriate. So the idea here is a very fundamental metaphysical and even physical idea, and it actually has a lot of merit. For the universe to be comprehensible to us is quite extraordinary. And uh, while evolutionary psychologists will say, of course, it's comprehensible to us, we evolved in it, we're part of it. Um, and as thinking beings, we had to evolve to be able to comprehend it. But if you really start to think about what's going on, the fact that the universe is sort of interpretable, like a text, or better, like a mathematical equation or series of ratios or series of mathematically mappable tensions, you end up with coming to some strange conclusions. Now, one of the conclusions that the ancients came to, and by the ancients here, I, I really mean thinkers in the tradition broadly known as Neopythagorean thought, and certainly within the Platonist tradition, that's what the ratios in the Timaeus are all about. The Demiurge creates the universe out of harmonic proportions, resulting in order out of chaos, resulting in a universe that can be accessed by the faculty of logos, which we remember in Greek means both rational thought, but also words and mathematical operations. Logoi can be things like doing sums. So in this linked thought world where numbers and letters and the spoken word are sort of semantically connected with the very idea of being able to uh, make sense of things through logos, you can see why things like the decad take on a very significant cosmological role. Returning to our quote, hence the Pythagoreans in their theology call it, the decad, sometimes cosmos, sometimes heaven, sometimes all, sometimes fate and eternity, power and trust and necessity, atlas and unwearying and simply God and fannies and sun. Now fannies is of course a primordial God from the Orphic theology. And we know that Orphism and Pythagoreanism, classical antiquity are connected in very obscure and uh, difficult to interpret ways as we talked about in the podcast, but there definitely is a connection there. And then our author goes on to talk about the Decad in a cosmological and even one might say astrological framework, linking it with the planets and the, the sun and moon and the earth and the heaven itself. Like Clement of Alexandria was able to do, you can get a, a nice round Pythagorean 10 if you take your seven planets, add your eighth sphere of the fixed stars, add a ninth sphere where God hangs out, and then bring the earth itself into the equation, giving 10 cosmological entities. So that's a little introduction to the Decad, to the background of this whole text, and hopefully to bring you, gentle listener, into this way of thinking, which is very, very fascinating, and which is something that students of later Western esoteric currents, such as Kabbalah, most obviously, but also the lettrist Neo-Pythagorean um, speculations of the Islamicate world, and a whole host of Western Western esotericist thinking like the work of John Dee, to take one example, very much drinks at the fount of this sort of thinking, even if they haven't read this wonderful text. 
That's all for the theology of arithmetic. And with it, we also are bidding a fond farewell to the great Iamblichus. Gone, but not forgotten, as the sage of Chaukes will surely be appearing again in the podcast, and sooner than you might think when we cover the illustrious career of the great Julian. But before we get to Julian and his polytheist politics, it would be a really good idea to have a look at some of the other denizens of the Roman world in the late 3rd century who weren't polytheists, but who were up to some seriously esoteric stuff. After all, from the podcast over the last 20 episodes or so, you might get the false impression that there were only polytheists in the Roman Empire of the 3rd century, because we've been talking about Porphyry and Iamblichus. But we know that this was not the case. We know, in fact, that in hindsight, the empire was in the process of being transformed by a new social force, Christianity. What kinds of esoteric Christianity were afoot in the 3rd century? It turns out, gentle listener, a lot of interesting different kinds. And what indeed were the Jews up to in this period? Well, it turns out, gentle listener, a lot of really interesting stuff and very esoteric. The following series of episodes will check in with a number of esoteric currents in the monotheist tradition and also try to give some of the key background to the more exoteric historical side of things. So we need to know what's going on in the Roman Empire to some degree to understand what's going on in esoteric thinkers in the Roman Empire and be better situated to understand the complex developments of late antique thought to come. Stay esoteric. <laughs>